It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, September 26, 2022. I'm Mike Emanuel. House Republicans say they have a commitment to America to tackle the crises they argue Democrats have created. People have already started making these decisions. They don't want all this top-down, big-handed government socialism. They want more freedom. And that's what we're running on, and that's what we're going to provide. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Long before the labor shortage in the U.S., we had a nursing shortage that the pandemic has only worsened. And nurses fear that without more of them, patients will suffer and maybe already are. Nurses just want to be safe. They want to be able to work in a manner in which they can be efficient and work to their fullest ability to practice, which means lowered patient to nursing ratios. And we want to be paid well. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. In about six weeks, it'll be up to the American people to decide whether they want to continue with Democrats in charge of Washington or if they want Republicans as a check on the Biden administration. But part of regaining the majority is telling fellow Americans what Congress under GOP leadership would do. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy laid out a commitment to America plan. We want to be upfront with the American public. We want an election to have a contrast. If they put their trust in us, this is exactly what we'll do. Hold our feet to the fire. McCarthy and House Republicans caught President Biden's attention, who blasted the proposal at a Democratic National Committee event. The House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy went to Pennsylvania and unveiled on what he calls a commitment to America. That's a, that's a, a thin series of policy goals with little or no detail that he says Republicans are going to pursue if they regain control of the Congress. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, a Democrat from Maryland, went to battleground Pennsylvania to criticize the GOP vision. The true details of Republicans' agenda are too frightening for most American voters. Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan says Democrats have failed the American people and will pay for it. I really think this election is about four issues plus freedom. We went from a secure border to no border. We went from safe streets to record crime. We went from $2 gas to $5 gas, and we went from stable prices to record inflation. We're going to attack all those, and that's our commitment to the country. Now Republican leaders are out selling their ideas to voters who will decide the balance of power in Congress. We wanted to show the country what a Republican House of Representatives would do to actually confront the problems that so many families are facing. Steve Scalise is a Louisiana Republican who serves in GOP leadership as the minority whip. And we wanted to get out of the bubble of Washington. It seems like Washington is the place where they're creating so many problems for families right now. And when you get out into the heartland, you hear from real people. You talk to them about their challenges. And that's why we wanted to go to this steel factory in Pittsburgh. And these are everyday people. We, we had a town hall meeting and they were talking about inflation and how energy costs are really making it hard for them to put food on the table. They talked about, we had a sheriff there who was talking about the border crisis and how in his town outside of Pittsburgh, they're seeing so many deaths from fentanyl. And of course, that's a problem we're seeing all across America because we have an open southern border. And 
we laid out again in the commitment how we in a Republican House would bring bills to the floor that would actually solve these problems to lower inflation, to lower energy costs, to secure America's border, to get parents more involved in their kids' education. You know, that that's the sort of thing where I think when you get out to the heartland of America, you hear a different story than when you're in the bubble of Washington, where all they want to do is tax and spend, and they don't think it has an impact on people. And, uh, and, and so that's going to be a sharp contrast in this November's election. No surprise, folks in the mainstream media are having their reaction to the document. Uh, the New York Magazine Intelligencer saying the document has a lot of bells and whistles and factoids about the hellish reign of Joe Biden and his Democrat Party. What it doesn't have is a whole lot of specificity. Do you want to take that on? Yeah, sure. And I mean, we get into very minute detail on a number of these issues uh, on energy policy. I could lay out 10 different things we could do tomorrow that would lower energy costs. But what you're going to see also is a Congress that works again. And I think people aren't used to that because Pelosi, not only did she shut down the Capitol, uh, they have proxy voting where, you know, some of these massive trillion dollar bills, there's more than 100 members of Congress who voted for these bills away from D.C. They weren't even at the Capitol meeting in person. And so people haven't seen Congress function again. So we're going to actually let the committees write the bills in public view. Imagine where you could turn on C-SPAN and watch a committee meeting where they're talking about how to lower energy costs, you know, whether it's permitting reform, whether it's building more pipelines, whether it's having lease sales, all the things that Joe Biden won't do that we would do. Uh, there is detail. If you really want to go get it, you can go to commitmenttoamerica.com. And for example, how do you get parents more involved in their kids' education? We have a parent's bill of rights. It's a great bill that lays out very detailed things that we would do at the federal level to ensure that parents could play a role in their kids' education without having union bosses in the Department of Justice go after them and try to deem them as domestic terrorists, which is what Biden's Department of Justice did to parents who started showing up at school board meetings in record level because they dared say we, we have a concern about what's happening in the classroom now that we see these virtual hearings. We want to see the curriculum. Uh, so we're going to have details on all of that, including, again, how do you secure the border? You don't need to reinvent the wheel on this, Mike. We had a secure border before Joe Biden was president. And we talked in the commitment to America in detail about things like restoring the Remain in Mexico policy, uh, the Northern Triangle agreements, but also getting back to the infrastructure that creates a secure border, like building the wall. The wall was actually working. Joe Biden immediately halted construction of the wall the day he walked into the White House. And all of those actions he took had devastating impacts on our national security, we would reverse that and go back to things that work. You know, let's make the tax cuts permanent. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty in the tax code. You know, you want specificity, by the way. One of the things Joe Biden just signed a bill to do is to more than double the size of the IRS. 87,000 more IRS agents coming after you to try to get more taxes from you. Day one, we would repeal those 87,000 IRS agents. So there's a lot of detail if you want to go look for it, but we're also going to actually have hearings in public view in committees where these bills will be written and brought to the floor for a vote. And then the ultimate accountability is we're going to have votes on all this. Mm -hmm. Members of Congress will be able to vote yes or no. And I'd love in every swing district in America for this debate to happen. I'm sure a lot of folks listening today remember Newt Gingrich's contract with America in 1994. How similar is commitment to America to Gingrich's proposal, and where does it differ? 
Yeah, it's similar in that we put real ideas down. These are bold, conservative ideas that contrast with what the Democrats are doing. Make no mistake, the Democrats are doing the opposite of a lot of these things that we're talking about. And in fact, Joe Biden's already come out against it. Uh, Nancy Pelosi called it extreme. So anybody who says it's not specific enough, Nancy Pelosi already said it's too extreme. So she thinks it's extreme to secure America's border. She thinks it's extreme to lower inflation. I'm not shocked because she's created these problems with Joe Biden. But we worked with people like Newt Gingrich. And in fact, Newt Gingrich was at the rollout that we did to our members right before we flew out of Washington on Thursday. So Mm -hmm. Thursday, we were still in D.C. voting. And Newt Gingrich came along with Kellyanne Conway and rolled out. And he even talked in some ways about how some of this is similar, some of it's different. Of course, there were some different issues in 1994 than we're dealing with today. But they also go through some of the things that we're talking about that are similar. And most of the similarities involve restoring freedom back to people, getting it out of Washington, taking power away from Washington and giving it back to the people. And I think that's the heart of the biggest fights we're seeing right now. Do we want a nation that's safe and a future that's built on freedom? The Democrats don't want that. They've made our country less safe with very specific actions. We're going to take similar reverse actions to make our country safe again, to restore freedom, to hold government accountable again. There were some predictions there could be a red wave in November. In recent weeks, some of the polls have suggested some tightening. Do you think this proposal will give Republicans the momentum you need to have a sweeping victory in November? Yeah, you know, every two years, it seems like the D.C. press wants to try to create fake momentum. I call it momentum for the Democrats. <laughs> you know, two years ago, they were saying Pelosi is going to get 15 to 20 more seats. What happened? The opposite happened. We flipped 15 seats from Democrat to Republican. Uh, I think you're seeing similar things this time around. And as they create this momentum again, I mean, we're we're getting excitement when I go out and I've been to dozens of congressional districts just in the last few weeks. And these are all swing districts. So you see what's happening in a 50-50 district. And the Democrat who's been voting for all this socialist policy with Pelosi and Biden, they're trying to run away from their own votes because the voters don't like the results. They don't like inflation that's been caused by all the spending in the regulations from Biden. They don't like the fact that there's an unsecure border. So uh, our candidates are phenomenal candidates. You know, when you meet them, uh, you see, we just got people from great walks of life. We've got a lot of military veterans that served our country in other places around the world, and they know that the fight for freedom is in D.C. If we're going to be able to restore that promise of the American dream, it's it's very critical that people vote on November 8th. And look, you can see the contrast between us and them in terms of what we're for and what they're for and what we're against and what they're against. It's very binary in terms of, you know, do you want more freedom restored back to you as people, or do you want it taken away and want the government to tell you what to do? That's what we saw during lockdowns. And of course, Mike, we also saw during the lockdowns, people started moving. They moved away from states that were shut down, and they moved towards states that are more open, like freedom. People moved from California to Texas or from New York and New Jersey to Florida. And so people have already started making these decisions. They don't want all this top-down big-handed government socialism. They want more freedom, and that's what we're running on, and that's what we're going to provide if we get a Republican House.
Assuming you guys win back the majority, uh, the Washington Post is making this prediction. The Freedom Caucus is expected to make starker demands of leadership in exchange for their votes. In particular, a request to bring back a rule that gives members the ability to recall the speaker at any time. A direct threat should McCarthy take the gavel. So how do you keep your fellow Republicans all on the same page? You're the Republican whip right now. You may get a promotion uh, in the new Congress, but how do you keep everybody together? Yeah, if you look right now, we're very united, in fact, in Pittsburgh. When we had the rollout Friday at that steel factory, you saw members from every different faction within our conference, including the Freedom Caucus. And it shows you that everybody in our conference, sure, we will have internal discussions. You know, nobody's, mm-hmm. nobody's trying to, to gloss over that. But the first mission is let's be united in what our vision would be, what we're telling the American people what we do. And then let's go do those things, but we can't do them if we're not in the majority. And when we do get the majority, sure, we will have a lot of internal discussions. You know, it was funny when Newt was with us, he made a point to mention that when they got in the majority, after being out for 40 years in the wilderness, you know, 94 (laughs) Republicans weren't in the majority for 40 years. He said they had a lot of internal discussions over Mm -hmm. direction and which approach do we take on all of the things that we did. And he said, you know, it makes it a more healthy conference, because ultimately you have to come together to get any of this done. But let's have the internal debates and discussions about what the best way is to do it. And by the way, part of that is the commitment to America. This was put together with every faction of our conference. We would have briefings and say, okay, we're going to have a hearing and let's bring our task force together on energy and talk about energy policy. We get over 100 members of Congress participating in putting the plan together. So you had members from all walks of life on the Republican side saying, you know, let's put our best ideas on the table and then go out to the American people and give them a choice. House Republican Whip Steve Scalise of the great state of Louisiana. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Safe travels out on the campaign trail and we'll be following it. And God bless, Mike. Thanks. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. An ongoing nursing shortage in the country that existed well before the pandemic has grown more acute. McKinsey & Company estimated this year that by 2025, we will be short anywhere from 200,000 to 450,000 nurses. McKinsey's report found that between 2017 and 2021, the registered nurse turnover rate jumped up 9%. The American Hospital Association earlier this year predicted a shortage of 1.1 million nurses by the end of the year. All this is felt even more intensely in rural areas. We're offering a $5,000 sign-on bonus, which is a lot for us. But there are um, areas just right around us that are offering $35,000 sign-on bonuses. William Kiefer was the CEO of OmniPoint Hospital in Anahuac, Texas, when he spoke to Fox News earlier this year, though he has since resigned. But rural or not, every state is being impacted. Nurse Kathleen Bartholomew told Fox 5 in Atlanta, Georgia, they are overwhelmed. Education, follow-up, contacting your patients, quality and safety improvements, going to shared governance meetings. But no, it's just like Lucille Ball in the chocolate factory, except for instead of the chocolates, it's the patients. So we can't stop the conveyor belt. Those in the profession have said shortages can lead to errors, 
and even higher morbidity rates among patients. We also feel the squeeze of, you know, um, short staffing and things of that nature. Keisha House is an advanced practice nurse at University of Illinois Health Systems and teaches at UIC College of Nursing. Whether it's because of the pandemic, individuals don't want to work in unsafe circumstances, or, you know, before the pandemic, unsafe patient-to-nurse ratios where nurses are extremely burned out or feeling unsafe or feeling they may lose their licenses if they make mistakes or things mm. of that nature. Also, employee-employer relationships. Nurses can't call off. We try to call off and, you know, we get asked, well, what are your symptoms? And, you know, if you don't have a fever, you can still come to work, regardless if I'm having a mental health crisis or if, you know, my baby is sick or if I got something going on. You know, employers will make you feel bad about calling off or you get reprimanded for those sorts of things or employers don't do a lot of appreciation of their staff. And it just has evolved through the years. And I think nurses are just tired. So either they are not working or they are holding out for a better job or a job with a higher pay in Mm. efforts to sustain them. You said it's not as critical where you are specifically, but that you talk and you hear about how it is in other places. We've seen reports about how in rural areas, it's, it's much more dire than maybe in some of the bigger cities. What do you think some healthcare systems can do to maybe even things out, even the playing field out? Is it about pay to address some of the shortages that we see in some areas that are worse than, than others? So what I know that UIC is doing, which I'm really proud of my employer in College of Nursing for this, we have a great entry program in Urbana-Champaign and in Springfield in areas where there is a healthcare provider shortage. You know, having these courses where if you already have a bachelor's or, you know, another degree, you can be directly admitted into a nursing program. We're trying to, you know, help with that pipeline of Um, developing new nurses to get them out there. You ask me, is it about pay? It's always about pay, Miss Jessica. You know that. (laughs) You know, people want to pay what they feel that they deserve, right? And systematically, nurses deserve a pay raise. I think the pandemic has really driven that, that need and nurses advocating for themselves because, you know, I remember when this first started, some nurses could not go home. They will unshift days and days at a time away from their loved ones, their families. Or when you get home, a nurse like myself who works in primary care in the community, I would go through my garage, tell my daughter, no, don't touch me. Don't hug me. Give me a garbage bag. And I'm putting all of my things in a garbage bag. And then I run to take a shower like and it tolls on your mental well-being and stability. And so industry wide. There should be a pay increase. New graduate nurses get so lowballed on on pay that it's like maybe I should just stay at the job that I have right now and just work a little overtime versus you paying me under what I already make. We know the the healthcare system in this country sucks up a lot of money. Um, like for years, when you compare the U.S. to other countries, we spend far more on healthcare than I think any other country. So when you zoom out and you think of like the bigger picture here, what do you think is a solution if we're spending all this money already and we still can't provide? Do we need to incentivize people from other countries to come here and be nurses? What's, what do no. you think? 
what I think is that we need to incentivize the nurses and the nurse leaders that we have today. So I am a clinical instructor and I've been a clinical instructor for quite some time, not just with UI Health, but with other organizations. And I have experienced, and I'm just speaking in general terms, that you have a new nurse that you need to train. All right, I already have 20 patients that I need to see in a day. Mm -hmm. And you want me to train a new nurse, which I have no problems with. But that takes time, right? You know, it it slows you down because you need to educate and so forth and so on. And is there any additional pay for that? Mm -hmm. No. Do you do you decrease the amount of patients that I see per day so that I can fully onboard this new nurse and make him or her feel welcome? So it's things like that. We need onboarding programs for our new nurses. We shouldn't have to continue to take loans to get additional degrees in nursing to help the nursing profession. I have a bachelor's of science in nursing, a master's of science in nursing, a doctor of nursing practice. Do you know how many student loans I have (laughs) in pursuit of those degrees? I spoke with my student right before I stepped out to take this interview with you. I'm, I'm training a nurse practitioner student right now as we speak. And I asked her, you know, what is it that that makes you still want to do this even with the pandemic because she's already a registered nurse and she makes pretty good money and her starting salary may be lower than the salary that she has right now wow she actually may be making more money right now as a registered nurse than as right. a, a nurse who has this additional specialized training that's because these individuals still have and they have a passion to help and I think we need to take a better better care of the nurses that we already have where when you when you talk to nurses who are burned out or who are leaving the profession where are they going because I'm seeing stories about some of these healthcare systems and hospitals paying extra money for traveling nurses to fill the backlog to fill the shortages so are you seeing people say oh I can make more money you know still doing some nursing work, but in a different capacity. And so that, that throws the whole system off kilter. If you, if you're, if you've got people who are leaving the system, but still kind of in it, like, where do you see people going? Now, does that even make sense (laughs) that you would pay an agency or a travel nurse more money to come in? And a lot of times, you know, the housing is paid for, you know, other expenses is paid for. And that, that's a draw. Yes. There are some nurses who resign and then they work travel nurse. There's some nurses who have left um, working in formalized organization. Some have opened private practices, being nurse practitioner led primary um, healthcare facilities or psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner mm-hmm. um, facilities or telemedicine or some even open, you know, like spa med businesses. And, you know, because it offers more flexibility in your schedule, a better quality of life, decreased stress, that burnout, you know, the pay is better. Tell me, because I think the importance here is safety. It's health, right? I mean, that's the whole reason we're worried about this. So so what do you hear from your actual patients? Do they complain to you? Have you ever personally worried about the safety of a particular patient because you're, you're too scrambled and you've got too much on your plate? Absolutely. 
let me just be honest. I'm a highly spiritual person, so I pray before I do anything. Lord, <laughs> let me take care of everybody the way that they need to. Let's keep everybody alive. Let you Amen. know continue to be safe. Even before I became a nurse practitioner and I was working just on the floor, as we call it, I worked in med surge. I've done some ICU. I've done OB nursing. I've done administration. And each one of those roles, it was unsafe patient ratios. And so many times I would be worried about if I did the right thing, that I make the right decision, that I do the right thing, because we spend so much time with these patients as nurses and it can happen. It can happen to the best of us. You know, it's about safety. Nurses just want to be safe. They want to be able to work in a manner in which they can be efficient and work to their fullest ability to practice, which means lowered patient to nursing ratios. And we want to be paid well. My final question for you before I let you go is, I, I wonder if there are certain areas that get more staffing than others. Like I remember being in the hospital after having my both my kids, and I, I just remembered thinking that these postpartum nurses were angels. And I, uh, because I'm a reporter, I was like, gosh, I don't feel this nursing shortage. <laughs> and it made me wonder, you know, was the hospital I was at, you know, did they put a, a priority on the postpartum ward? Or were there just more nurses that work postpartum? Like, are there certain areas of a hospital that maybe have a better ratio than others? Yes. ICU nurses, they typically have a two to one ratio, two patients to one nurse because the acuity is so high. ICU nurses do total care. So they bathe, they reposition, mm. you know, change bed linen. They give all of the medications. They do all of the intake and output documentation. You know, they do a lot. Labor and delivery nurses, when I worked labor and delivery at a Chicago community hospital, if I was working the labor side, I had two patients because I am essentially caring for a laboring mother and her baby that's in utero. So that's essentially four patients, right? On the med search floor, when I worked at a facility on the north side of Chicago, I will have eight patients. But let me tell you, at this facility, Maybe six of my patients were on the ventilator. Maybe seven of them had a bacteria or organism that was contagious. And each room that I went into, I had to dress in a gown and a mask and gloves and foot coverings and things of that nature in each room. It's real. This is real. And I don't think patients and people know what nurses go through. We put our families on hold to take care of yours. And a lot of times there's a lot of verbal abuse from patients and their families, you know, you're trying to care for the patient and they're on the phone because they need to know about their mom. How's my mom doing or have my dad or whomever. And I'm trying to get back to the room. I have an emergency. Somebody may have a cold blue or a rapid response or I'm needed elsewhere. And the family think, well, oh, the nurse doesn't want to talk to me. I'm going to go up there. And they do. I've been called some of the worst names ever at work. Mm. I had a patient try to fight me at work. And I just think that this is all driving this shortage and it's going to directly affect patient care, facility profits. All of it is going to be upside down. Nurse Keisha House, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Here's a look at the week ahead. 
Monday. SpaceX founder Elon Musk is set for a deposition in a lawsuit over his efforts to pull out of his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Wednesday. President Biden is scheduled to host leaders of Pacific Island nations as China's growing influence throughout the Indo-Pacific raises concerns in Washington. Thursday is National Coffee Day in the U.S. and Canada. The International Coffee Organization uses the day and International Coffee Day on Saturday to raise awareness for coffee farmers around the world to make a living wage. Friday. The government's fiscal year ends and Congress must approve a spending bill before the end of the day to avert a potential shutdown of federal services. Saturday. Former President Trump holds another campaign rally for Republican candidates in Michigan. The next window for NASA to launch its Artemis 1 mission. The test flight is the first in a series of launches designed to return humans to the moon. Artemis 1 will send an uncrewed capsule into lunar orbit. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? Suburban crime's not something we think much about, but in these times we should. In 2021, there were 51 homicides in the burbs outside Minneapolis and St. Paul, double the number for the previous year. And this is not an outlier. Crime in the America of picket fences and ice cream socials is on the rise, and there is no hiding it. Take this story from the Washington Post with its headline blaring, New York City is a lot safer than small town America. It's not hyperbole. We tend to think of the nation's crime problem as a particularly urban blight, but it isn't. The rise in antisocial behavior knows no urban border. As crime gets out of control, it drifts to our small towns and suburbs. There are experts about such things, so I asked one about it, as one does these days. And Rafael Manguel, author of the new book, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most, told me this. While crime has traditionally been and largely remains hyper-concentrated in a given jurisdiction, Reports of increasing disorder and crime in jurisdictions typically known for their comparative safety may help move the needle in an important way. Indeed, there are political issues that we think about and political issues we feel. You feel inflation. When the groceries are fully scanned and the big number shows up, your gut reacts. Crime is like that too. You feel safe or you don't. It's been 30 years since crime was really a pressing issue for Americans, but polling today puts it front and center. Here in New York, our Republican candidate for governor, Representative Lee Zeldin, was attacked while giving a speech, and his assailant walked out of jail hours later. It's just how it is. The sentiments of my burger buddy were echoed at the Yale Club the other night, a venue that occasionally tolerates me. Overhearing a conversation about crime, a woman chimed in to say, we know how to do this, to fix this. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And of course, she was right. Mayors Rudy Giuliani and Ed Rendell fixed Philly and Gotham in about 10 minutes with good policing. We did fix this problem in the 1990s, but is there the political will to do it again? A basic sense of safety in the place where you live is not something that can be alighted or eluded by the political class. Listen, when the guy at the pub in Bay Ridge and the lovely older woman at the Yale Club are both talking about the same thing, it's a thing. Whether it's true or not, we have sort of collectively decided that the suburbs are where elections are decided. Okay. 
If the people there are worried about their own safety, we will see a sea change in American politics. School board meetings will pale in comparison. It's been three decades since Americans really worried about crime. It's back, not just in Baltimore and Chicago, but everywhere. Any politician not hearing what I'm hearing should be wary. Basically, you have one job. Keep us safe. You're failing. This is David Marcus, author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.